Chapter fifty nine, part two of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, volume six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Six by Edward Gibbon. Chapter fifty nine The Crusades, Part two. By the arms of the Turks and Franks, the Fatimites had been deprived of Syria. In Egypt, the decay of their character and influence was still more essential. Yet they were still revered as the descendants and successors of the Prophet. They maintained their invisible state in the palace of Cairo, and their person was seldom violated by the profane eyes of subjects or strangers. The Latin ambassadors have described their own introduction through a series of gloomy passages and glittering porticoes. The scene was enlivened by the warbling of birds and the murmur of fountains. It was enriched by a display of rich furniture and rare animals. Of the imperial treasures something was shown, and much was supposed. And the long order of unfolding doors was guarded by black soldiers and domestic eunuchs. The sanctuary of the presence-chamber was veiled with a curtain, and the vizier, who conducted the ambassadors, laid aside the scimitar, and prostrated himself three times on the ground. The veil was then removed, and they beheld the commander of the faithful, who signified his pleasure to the first slave of the throne. But this slave was his master. The viziers or sultans had usurped the supreme administration of Egypt. The claims of the rival candidates were decided by arms, and the name of the most worthy, of the strongest, was inserted in the royal patent of command. The factions of Dargham and Shawa alternately expelled each other from the capital and country, and the weaker side implored the dangerous protection of the Sultan of Damascus, or the King of Jerusalem, the perpetual enemies of the sect and monarchy of the Fatimites. By his arms and religion the Turk was most formidable, but the Frank, in an easy direct march, could advance from Gaza to the Nile while the intermediate situation of his realm compelled the troops of Nuruddin to wheel round the skirts of Arabia, a long and painful circuit which exposed them to thirst, fatigue, and the burning winds of the desert. The secret zeal and ambition of the Turkish prince aspired to reign in Egypt under the name of the Abbasides, but the restoration of the suppliant Shawa was the ostensible motive of the first expedition and the success was entrusted to the emir Shiraku, a valiant and veteran commander. Dargham was oppressed and slain, but the ingratitude, the jealousy, the just apprehensions, of his more fortunate rival soon provoked him to invite the king of Jerusalem to deliver Egypt from his insolent benefactors. To this union the forces of Shiraku were unequal. He relinquished the premature conquest and the evacuation of Belbase, or Pelusium, was the condition of his safe retreat. As the Turks defiled before the enemy, and their general closed the rear with a vigilant eye and a battle-axe in his hand, a Frank presumed to ask him if he were not afraid of an attack. "'It is doubtless in your power to begin the attack,' replied the intrepid emir, "'but rest assured that not one of my soldiers will go to Paradise till he has sent an infidel to hell.' His report of the riches of the land, the effeminacy of the natives, and the disorders of the government, 
revived the hopes of Nureddin. The Caliph of Baghdad applauded the pious design, and Shiraku descended into Egypt a second time, with twelve thousand Turks and eleven thousand Arabs. Yet his forces were still inferior to the confederate armies of the Franks and Saracens, and I can discern an unusual degree of military art in his passage of the Nile, his retreat into Thebes, his masterly evolutions in the Battle of Balbane, the surprise of Alexandria, and his marches and countermarches in the flats and valley of Egypt, from the tropic to the sea. His conduct was seconded by the courage of his troops, and on the eve of action a Mameluke exclaimed, If we cannot wrest Egypt from the Christian dogs, why do we not renounce the honours and rewards of the Sultan, and retire to labour with the peasants, or to spin with the females of the harem? Yet, after all his efforts in the field, after the obstinate defence of Alexandria by his nephew Saladin, an honourable capitulation and retreat concluded the second enterprise of Shiraku, and Nureddin reserved his abilities for a third and more propitious occasion. It was soon offered by the ambition and avarice of Amalric, or Amori, king of Jerusalem, who had imbibed the pernicious maxim that no faith should be kept with the enemies of God. A religious warrior, the great master of the hospital, encouraged him to proceed. The Emperor of Constantinople either gave, or promised, a fleet to act with the armies of Syria, and the perfidious Christian, unsatisfied with spoil and subsidy, aspired to the conquest of Egypt. In this emergency the Muslims turned their eyes towards the Sultan of Damascus. The vizier, whom danger encompassed on all sides, yielded to their unanimous wishes, and Nureddin seemed to be tempted by the fair offer of one-third of the revenue of the kingdom. The Franks were already at the gates of Cairo, but the suburbs, the old city, were burnt on their approach. They were deceived by an insidious negotiation, and their vessels were unable to surmount the barriers of the Nile. They prudently declined a contest with the Turks in the midst of a hostile country, and Amori retired into Palestine, with the shame and reproach that always adhere to unsuccessful injustice. After this deliverance, Shiraku was invested with a robe of honour, which he soon stained with the blood of the unfortunate Shor. For a while, the Turkish emirs condescended to hold the office of vizier, but this foreign conquest precipitated the fall of the Fatimites themselves, and the bloodless change was accomplished by a message and a word. The caliphs had been degraded by their own weakness and the tyranny of the viziers. Their subjects blushed when the descendant and successor of the Prophet presented his naked hand to the rude grip of a Latin ambassador. They wept when he sent the hair of his women, a sad emblem of their grief and terror to excite the pity of the Sultan of Damascus. By the command of Nureddin, and the sentence of the doctors, the holy names of Abu Bakr, Amar, and Othman were solemnly restored. The Caliph Mostadi, of Baghdad, was acknowledged in the public prayers as the true commander of the faithful, and the green livery of the sons of Ali was exchanged for the black colour of the Abbasides. The last of his race, the Caliph Adhed, who survived only ten days, expired in happy ignorance of his fate. His treasures secured the loyalty of the soldiers, and silenced the murmurs of the sectaries, and in all subsequent revolutions Egypt has never departed from the orthodox tradition of the Muslims. 
The hilly country beyond the Tigris is occupied by the pastoral tribes of the Kurds, a people hardy, strong, savage, impatient of the yoke, addicted to rapine, and tenacious of the government of their national chiefs. The resemblance of name, situation, and manners seems to identify them with the Carduchians of the Greeks, and they still defend against the Ottoman port the antique freedom which they asserted against the successors of Cyrus. Poverty and ambition prompted them to embrace the profession of mercenary soldiers. The service of his father and uncle prepared the reign of the great Saladin, and the son of Job, or Ayud, a simple Kurd, magnanimously smiled at his pedigree, which flattery deduced from the Arabian caliphs. So unconscious was Nuruddin of the impending ruin of his house, that he constrained the reluctant youth to follow his uncle Shiraku into Egypt. His military character was established by the defence of Alexandria, and, if we may believe the Latins, he solicited and obtained from the Christian general the profane honours of knighthood. On the death of Shiraku, the office of Grand Vizier was bestowed on Saladin, as the youngest and least powerful of the emirs. But with the advice of his father, whom he invited to Cairo, his genius obtained the ascendant over his equals, and attached the army to his person and interest. While Nuruddin lived, these ambitious Kurds were the most humble of his slaves, and the indiscreet murmurs of the divan were silenced by the prudent Ayub, who loudly protested that at the command of the Sultan he himself would lead his sons in chains to the foot of the throne. Such language, he added in private, was prudent and proper in an assembly of your rivals, but we are now above fear and obedience, and the threats of Nuruddin shall not exhort the tribute of a sugar-cane. His seasonable death relieved them from the odious and doubtful conflict. His son, a minor of eleven years of age, was left for a while to the emirs of Damascus, and the new lord of Egypt was decorated by the caliph with every title that could sanctify his usurpation in the eyes of the people. Nor was Saladin long content with the possession of Egypt. He despoiled the Christians of Jerusalem, and the Atabeks of Damascus, Aleppo, and Diarbekir. Mecca and Medina acknowledged him for their temporal protector. His brother subdued the distant regions of Yemen, or the happy Arabia. And at the hour of his death his empire was spread from the African Tripoli to the Tigris, and from the Indian Ocean to the mountains of Armenia. In the judgment of his character, the reproaches of treason and ingratitude strike forcibly on our minds, impressed as they are with the principle and experience of law and loyalty. But his ambition may in some measure be excused by the revolutions of Asia, which had erased every notion of legitimate succession, by the recent example of the Atabeks themselves, by his reverence to the son of his benefactor, his humane and generous behaviour to the collateral branches, by their incapacity and his merit, by the approbation of the caliph, the sole source of all legitimate power, and, above all, by the wishes and interest of the people, whose happiness is the first object of government. In his virtues, and in those of his patron, they admired the singular union of the hero and the saint, for both Nuruddin and Saladin are ranked among the Mohammedan saints, and the constant meditation of the holy war appears to have shed a serious and sober colour over their lives and actions. The youth of the latter was addicted to wine and women, 
but his aspiring spirit soon renounced the temptations of pleasure for the graver follies of fame and dominion. The garment of Saladin was of course woollen, water was his only drink, and while he emulated the temperance, he surpassed the chastity of his Arabian prophet. Both in faith and practice he was a rigid Mussulman. He ever deplored that the defence of religion had not allowed him to accomplish the pilgrimage of Mecca. But, at the stated hours, five times each day, the Sultan devoutly prayed with his brethren. The involuntary omission of fasting was scrupulously repaid, and his perusal of the Koran, on horseback, between the approaching armies, may be quoted as a proof, however ostentatious, of piety and courage. The superstitious doctrine of the sect of Shafei was the only study that he deigned to encourage. The poets were safe in his contempt, but all profane science was the object of his aversion, and a philosopher, who had invented some speculative novelties, was seized and strangled by the command of the royal saint. The justice of his divan was accessible to the meanest suppliant against himself and his ministers, and it was only for a kingdom that Saladin would deviate from the rule of equity. While the descendants of Seljuk and Zengi held his stirrup and smoothed his garments, he was affable and patient with the meanest of his servants. So boundless was his liberality that he distributed twelve thousand horses at the siege of Acre, and, at the time of his death, no more than forty-seven drams of silver and one piece of gold coin were found in the treasury. Yet, in a martial reign, the tributes were diminished, and the wealthy citizens enjoyed, without fear or danger, the fruits of their industry. Egypt, Syria, and Arabia were adorned by the royal foundations of hospitals, colleges, and mosques, and Cairo was fortified with a wall and citadel, but his works were consecrated to public use, nor did the Sultan indulge himself in a garden or palace of private luxury. In a fanatic age, himself a fanatic, the genuine virtues of Saladin commanded the esteem of the Christians. The Emperor of Germany gloried in his friendship, the Greek Emperor solicited his alliance, and the conquest of Jerusalem diffused, and perhaps magnified his fame, both in the East and West. During his short existence, the kingdom of Jerusalem was supported by the discord of the Turks and Saracens, and both the Fatimite caliphs and the sultans of Damascus were tempted to sacrifice the cause of their religion to the meaner considerations of private and present advantage. But the powers of Egypt, Syria, and Arabia were now united by a hero, whom nature and fortune had armed against the Christians. All without now bore the most threatening aspect, and all was feeble and hollow in the internal state of Jerusalem. After the first two Baldwins, the brother and cousin of Godfrey of Bouillon, the sceptre devolved by female succession to Melisenda, daughter of the second Baldwin, and her husband Fulk, Count of Anjou, the father by a former marriage of our English Plantagenets. Their two sons, Baldwin III and Ormery, waged a strenuous and not unsuccessful war against the infidels, but the son of Ormery, Baldwin IV, was deprived by the leprosy, a gift of the Crusades, of the faculties both of mind and body. His sister Sibylla, the mother of Baldwin V, was his natural heiress. After the suspicious death of her child, she crowned her second husband, Guy of Lusignan, a prince of a handsome person, 
but of such base renown that his own brother Geoffrey was heard to exclaim, Since they have made him a king, surely they would have made me a god. The choice was generally blamed, and the most powerful vassal, Raymond, Count of Tripoli, who had been excluded from the succession and regency, entertained an implacable hatred against the king, and exposed his honour and conscience to the temptations of the Sultan. Such were the guardians of the holy city, a leper, a child, a woman, a coward, and a traitor. Yet its fate was delayed twelve years by some supplies from Europe, by the valour of the military orders, and by the distant or domestic avocations of their great enemy. At length, on every side, the sinking state was encircled and pressed by a hostile line, and the truce was violated by the Franks, whose existence it protected. A soldier of fortune, Reginald of Chatillon, had seized a fortress on the edge of the desert, from whence he pillaged the caravans, insulted Mohammed, and threatened the cities of Mecca and Medina. Saladin condescended to complain, rejoiced in the denial of justice, and, at the head of fourscore thousand horse and foot, invaded the Holy Land. The choice of Tiberius for his first siege was suggested by the Count of Tripoli, to whom it belonged, and the King of Jerusalem was persuaded to drain his garrison, and to arm his people, for the relief of that important place. By the advice of the perfidious Raymond, the Christians were betrayed into a camp destitute of water. He fled on the first onset, with the curses of both nations. Lucinian was overthrown, with the loss of thirty thousand men, and the wood of the true cross, a dire misfortune, was left in the power of the infidels. The royal captive was conducted to the tent of Saladin, and as he fainted with thirst and terror, the generous victor presented him with a cup of sherbet, cooled in snow, without suffering his companion, Reginald of Chatillon, to partake of this pledge of hospitality and pardon. The person and dignity of a king, said the Sultan, are sacred, but this impious robber must instantly acknowledge the prophet, whom he has blasphemed, or meet the death which he has so often deserved. On the proud or conscientious refusal of the Christian warrior, Saladin struck him on the head with his scimitar, and Reginald was dispatched by the guards. The trembling Lucinian was sent to Damascus, to an honourable prison and speedy ransom, but the victory was stained by the execution of two hundred and thirty knights of the hospital, the intrepid champions and martyrs of their faith. The kingdom was left without a head, and of the two grand masters of the military orders, the one was slain and the other was a prisoner. From all the cities, both of the sea-coast and the inland country, the garrisons had been drawn away for this fatal field. Tyre and Tripoli alone could escape the rapid inroad of Saladin, and three months after the Battle of Tiberias he appeared in arms before the gates of Jerusalem. He might expect that the siege of a city so venerable on earth and in heaven, so interesting to Europe and Asia, would rekindle the last sparks of enthusiasm, and that, of sixty thousand Christians, every man would be a soldier, and every soldier a candidate for martyrdom. But Queen Sibylla trembled for herself and her captive husband, and the barons and knights, who had escaped from the sword and chains of the Turks, displayed the same factious and selfish spirit in the public ruin. The most numerous portion of the inhabitants was composed of the Greek and Oriental Christians, whom experience had taught to prefer the Mahometan before the Latin yoke and the holy sepulchre, 
attracted a base and needy crowd, without arms or courage, who subsisted only on the charity of the pilgrims. Some feeble and hasty efforts were made for the defence of Jerusalem, but in the space of fourteen days a victorious army drove back the sallies of the besieged, planted their engines, opened the wall to the breadth of fifteen cubits, applied their scaling-ladders, and erected on the breach twelve banners of the Prophet and the Sultan. It was in vain that a barefoot procession of the Queen, the women, and the monks, implored the Son of God to save his tomb and his inheritance from impious violation. Their sole hope was in the mercy of the conqueror, and to their first suppliant deputation that mercy was sternly denied. He had sworn to avenge the patience and long-suffering of the Muslims. The hour of forgiveness was elapsed, and the moment was now arrived to expiate, in blood, the innocent blood which had been spilt by Godfrey and the First Crusaders. But a desperate and successful struggle of the Franks admonished the Sultan that his triumph was not yet secure. He listened with reverence to a solemn adjuration in the name of the common father of mankind, and a sentiment of human sympathy mollified the rigour of fanaticism and conquest. He consented to accept the city, and to spare the inhabitants. The Greek and Oriental Christians were permitted to live under his dominion, but it was stipulated that in forty days all the Franks and Latins should evacuate Jerusalem, and be safely conducted to the seaports of Syria and Egypt, that ten pieces of gold should be paid for each man, five for each woman, and one for every child and that those who were unable to purchase their freedom should be detained in perpetual slavery. Of some writers it is a favourite and invidious theme to compare the humanity of Saladin with the massacre of the First Crusade. The difference would be merely personal, but we should not forget that the Christians had offered to capitulate, and that the Mohammedans of Jerusalem sustained the last extremities of an assault and storm. Justice is indeed due to the fidelity with which the Turkish conqueror fulfilled the conditions of the treaty, and he may be deservedly praised for the glance of pity which he cast on the misery of the vanquished. Instead of a rigorous exaction of his debt, he accepted a sum of thirty thousand Byzants, for the ransom of seven thousand poor, two or three thousand more were dismissed by his gratuitous clemency, and the number of slaves was reduced to eleven or fourteen thousand persons. In this interview with the Queen, his words, and even his tears, suggested the kindest consolations. His liberal arms were distributed among those who had been made orphans or widows by the fortune of war, and while the knights of the hospital were in arms against him, he allowed their more pious brethren to continue, during the term of a year, the care and service of the sick. In these acts of mercy, the virtue of Saladin deserves our admiration and love, he was above the necessity of dissimulation, and his stern fanaticism would have prompted him to dissemble, rather than to affect, this profane compassion for the enemies of the Koran. After Jerusalem had been delivered from the presence of the strangers, the Sultan made his triumphal entry, his banners waving in the wind, and to the harmony of martial music. The great mosque of Omar, which had been converted into a church, was again consecrated to one god and his prophet Mohammed. The walls and pavement were purified with rose-water, and a pulpit, the labour of Nuruddin, was erected in the sanctuary. But when the golden cross that glittered on the dome 
was cast down and dragged through the streets, the Christians of every sect uttered a lamentable groan, which was answered by the joyful shouts of the Muslims. In four ivory chests the Patriarch had collected the crosses, the images, the vases, and the relics of the holy place. They were seized by the conqueror, who was desirous of presenting the Caliph with the trophies of Christian idolatry. He was persuaded, however, to entrust them to the Patriarch and Prince of Antioch, and the pious pledge was redeemed by Richard of England, at the expense of fifty-two thousand Byzants of gold. The nations might fear, and hope, the immediate and final expulsion of the Latins from Syria, which was yet delayed above a century after the death of Saladin. In the career of victory he was first checked by the resistance of Tyre. The troops and garrisons which had capitulated were imprudently conducted to the same port, their numbers were adequate to the defence of the place, and the arrival of Conrad of Montferrat inspired the disorderly crowd with confidence and union. His father, a venerable pilgrim, had been made prisoner in the Battle of Tiberias, but that disaster was unknown in Italy and Greece, where the son was urged by ambition and piety to visit the inheritance of his royal nephew, the infant Baldwin. The view of the Turkish banners warned him from the hostile coast of Jaffa, and Conrad was unanimously hailed as the prince and champion of Tyre, which was already besieged by the conqueror of Jerusalem. The firmness of his zeal, and perhaps his knowledge of a generous foe, enabled him to brave the threats of the Sultan, and to declare that should his aged parent be exposed before the walls, he himself would discharge the first arrow, and glory in his descent from a Christian martyr. The Egyptian fleet was allowed to enter the harbour of Tyre, but the chain was suddenly drawn, and five galleys were either sunk or taken, a thousand Turks were slain in a sally, and Saladin, after burning his engines, concluded a glorious campaign by a disgraceful retreat to Damascus. He was soon assailed by a more formidable tempest. The pathetic narratives, and even the pictures, that represented in lively colours the servitude and profanation of Jerusalem, awakened the torpid sensibility of Europe. The Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, and the kings of France and England assumed the cross, and the tardy magnitude of their armaments was anticipated by the maritime states of the Mediterranean and the ocean. The skilful and provident Italians first embarked in the ships of Genoa, Pisa, and Venice. They were speedily followed by the most eager pilgrims of France, Normandy, and the Western Isles. The powerful succour of Flanders, Frise, and Denmark filled near a hundred vessels, and the northern warriors were distinguished in the field by a lofty stature and ponderous battle-axe. Their increasing multitudes could no longer be confined within the walls of Tyre, or remain obedient to the voice of Conrad. They pitied the misfortunes, and revered the dignity, of Licinian, who was released from prison, perhaps, to divide the army of the Franks. He proposed the recovery of Ptolemais, or Acre, thirty miles to the south of Tyre, and the place was first invested by two thousand horse and thirty thousand foot under his nominal command. I shall not expatiate on the story of this memorable siege, which lasted near two years, and consumed, in a narrow space, the forces of Europe and Asia. Never did the flame of enthusiasm burn with fiercer and more destructive rage, nor could the true believers, a common appellation, who consecrated their own martyrs, 
refused some applause to the mistaken zeal and courage of their adversaries. At the sound of the holy trumpet, the Muslims of Egypt, Syria, Arabia, and the Oriental provinces, assembled under the servant of the Prophet, his camp was pitched and removed within a few miles of Acre, and he laboured night and day for the relief of his brethren and the annoyance of the Franks. Nine battles, not unworthy of the name, were fought in the neighbourhood of Mount Carmel, with such vicissitude of fortune that in one attack the Sultan forced his way into the city, that in one sally the Christians penetrated to the royal tent. By the means of divers and pigeons, a regular correspondence was maintained with the besieged, and, as often as the sea was left open, the exhausted garrison was withdrawn, and a fresh supply was poured into the place. The Latin camp was thinned by famine, the sword and the climate, but the tents of the dead were replenished with new pilgrims, who exaggerated the speed and strength of their approaching countrymen. The vulgar was astonished by the report, that the Pope himself, with an innumerable crusade, was advanced as far as Constantinople. The march of the Emperor filled the East with more serious alarms. The obstacles which he encountered in Asia, and perhaps in Greece, were raised by the policy of Saladin. His joy on the death of Barbarossa was measured by his esteem, and the Christians were rather dismayed than encouraged at the sight of the Duke of Swabia and his way-worn remnant of five thousand Germans. At length, in the spring of the second year, the royal fleets of France and England cast anchor in the Bay of Acre, and the siege was more vigorously prosecuted by the youthful emulation of the two kings, Philip Augustus and Richard Plantagenet. After every resource had been tried, and every hope was exhausted, the defenders of Acre submitted to their fate. A capitulation was granted, but their lives and liberties were taxed at the hard conditions of a ransom of two hundred thousand pieces of gold, the deliverance of one hundred nobles, and fifteen hundred inferior captives, and the restoration of the wood of the Holy Cross. Some doubts in the agreement, and some delay in the execution, rekindled the fury of the Franks, and three thousand Muslims, almost in the Sultan's view, were beheaded by the command of the sanguinary Richard. By the conquest of Acre, the Latin powers acquired a strong town and a convenient harbour, but the advantage was most dearly purchased. The minister and historian of Saladin computes, from the report of the enemy, that their numbers, at different periods, amounted to five or six hundred thousand, that more than one hundred thousand Christians were slain, that a far greater number was lost by disease or shipwreck, and that a small portion of this mighty host could return in safety to their native countries. End of chapter 59, part 2